0: And we will continue our study of this great letter to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, my first thought was when I saw this chapter uh, beginning, the first word is finally. And I thought, wow, here's another preacher who doesn't know how to end his sermon. Uh, <laughs> Because they say, and our last point, and then they talk for another half an hour. It's like, wait, you know, you said this was going to be over soon. Um, actually, John Stott doesn't like that word. In his translation, he says it's and now. In other words, separating the previous three chapters from the last two chapters. Because that's what Paul is trying to do. The first three chapters of First Thessalonians, he's looking back on his original visit. He's talking about his pastoral love for the people. He's addressing some concerns that may have been, um, may have come back in the report from Timothy. But chapters 4 and 5, he now looks to the present and to the future and gives very practical advice relating to problems of conduct in the congregation. We have to remember that Paul is writing to church people here. So sometimes when you read this, we think, oh yeah, that's for those people who don't go to church. He's talking to the people who are in the congregation. He starts out, Finally, and brothers, we must ask or request and exhort or urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And I'll pause there and go back to the beginning. We look in that first verse, he's saying, We urge, we, re- we ask, we implore that you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God we've seen Paul use that concept of walk many times Uh, he even used it earlier in Thessalonians and uh, Ephesians has you should walk worthy. Ray Steadman had a really interesting comment in his sermon on this passage he said walking usually involves one step at a time or thinking of it as two steps one left one right one left one right one left one right that's walking but when it comes to this sanctification and this walking and worthy before God you can find out what those two steps are and they're very simple if you follow them you will never stray from the path Colossians 3.5 says put to death what is er- earthly in you step one put off the old man which is sexual immorality impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry The next step is to put on, in Colossians 3.12, put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must also forgive. Very simple, two steps. Put off the old, put on the new. Put off the old, put on the new. And it's interesting when you think of it in the context of the journey of the Christian life, the journey of sanctification, it's a never-ending step. You are always going to be doing this. You will never achieve perfection or sinlessness. If anyone tells you that, they don't understand Scripture. They have a deviation in their theology and understanding of what sanctification truly is. It's a progressive step-by-step process. So I just love how Stedman put that. It's just two steps, very simple. Put off the old, put on the new. What's so tough about that? And you might go, but I'm a toddler and I stumble and I fall. Yeah, but eventually you learn to run and not grow weary, to walk and not faint. That's what the progress is. But Then he says here that we need to please God. Um, For those of us in the publishing industry we have knowing God, loving God, uh, uh, chosen by God, holiness of God, all these things but there's only one title called pleasing God. It's written by R.C. Stroll. It's part of his trilogy of holiness of God, chosen by God, and the um, pleasing God, which is all about sanctification. He put all, this publisher put all three of these classic books into one volume. I'll pass it around just for tickles and grins if you want to look at it. Um, What is pleasing God? What does it mean to please God? I mean, this phrase is unusual here. It's not used very often in the Bible. What does it mean to please God? How would you answer that question? You come to this verse and it says you ought to walk and to please God. Okay. What does that mean? What does it mean to please God? Any ideas? Follow the Ten Commandments. Follow the Ten Commandments. That's a good start. Yeah.
1: Obedience.
0: Very good. Going back to the original, the commandment to love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. I mean, is God up there going? You disappoint me, Steve. You need to please me. No. What? What's going on here? This is an unusual term. No. I think, I think
1: there is. means God, God would be grieving. Okay.
0: So grieving God for me means sin. It's a separation from God, okay? The idea of grieving God in by doing what is opposite of his will, which happens to be mentioned in verse three, the will of God. See, this is the problem of pulling a word out of the Bible and trying to talk about it, because if you look at the context It's all about sanctification. This whole section is about the idea of sanctification. The key words here are found in verse 3. For this, when he says this, what is he talking about? He's talking about the walking and pleasing. This is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality, etc., etc. It's also interesting at the end of verse 2 the ESV doesn't translate it as well as I think they could it says to please God just as you are doing so that you do so more and more the New American Standard translated as to excel still more I love that phrase it's a better phrase to do so more and more is accurate but to excel still more when John MacArthur was preaching on this (laughs) he actually got his congregation in you know guffawing and laughing because he said you know i grew up and uh, i would bring home a report card with a b plus and my father would say well that's okay but you can do better and then i would work hard and i would get an a and my was, that was that's good but you can do better And I get my A-plus and went, okay, so you're going to slack off now? (laughs) It's this whole idea of working towards that goal of excellence and excelling in this activity of pleasing God. So he was then talking to the congregation, he goes, this is a great church, but you can do better says, I see the love between the people and the congregation, but you can do better. And I I look at this verse, and here's this admonition where Paul's saying, you know, you're already doing this. And we observe that. You're walking worthy. You're pleasing God. But you can do better. You can work at this. You can do better. And even... As I get older and older and older, I keep thinking, I can do better. I can do more. I can continue to work at this. And that is sanctification. It's that working towards the goal of being as fine as we can in the will of God. That is what it's all about. I even wrote here, I said, Some people try to take the idea of pleasing God, the Pharisees, if we would look at them in that regard, and they turn it into a set of rules and regulations. Instead, well, that's a form of legalism. Basically saying, if you don't do this, that means you have failed and you don't get the special prize at the end of the day. That tends to fall into the world of works as a means of salvation. Whereas sanctification is not (coughs) salvation, but it is a means by which we can grow more godly. I wrote here, I said, why are we afraid of being branded as legalists? Well, because of that negative thing, but the problem is theologically, the world does not look at legalism theologically. They look at it as you're telling us what we can't do. We bring the word legalism into our circle and we're like, oh, yeah, we don't want that. But when we go out in the world and say, you're just being a legalist. It's like, and what's the problem with that? What you're doing is wrong. Full stop. You don't like what I'm saying, but it's wrong. And someone's says, well, yeah, but... You know, they're trying to chip away at the moral code, the moral fiber of what conduct and moral living is all about. Do you remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter? Do you remember? What city was he in? No, he was... Next one. Was it Bereav? Corinth. Corinth. He's already moved from Athens to Corinth by the time he, he, he wrote this. He was in... In our chronology, I... We should be doing it technically after his time in Athens, but that Athens passage is so big, I wanted to come back to it after Thessalonians. So he's in Corinth. Now, uh, and I'll probably bring this up again when we actually go through Corinthians, but um, I had the privilege of visiting Corinth as a tourist many, many bazillion years ago. And there's nothing there, just a bunch of broken down buildings and a toilet I mean they literally walk you into this oh look look at these those are wow it's just a long row of outhouse toilets yay uh, <laughs> the Roman bath like oh boy that's really exciting but you stand there in the middle of that town and our guide said now look up there and there, there's a mountain hill well we call these mountains um, but imagine we're standing in Corinth in the midst of these ruins, and we look up at the top of the mountain just a few miles away. And at the top of that mountain was the temple to Aphrodite, where 1,000 priestesses were there for sex as part of the worship. 1,000. We're not talking just a couple. 1,000 men and women were priests and priestesses of Aphrodite, which is the also the Roman god Venus, and the entire city was wrapped around this center of immorality as part of their worship. You know I jokingly said, I mean for them, that particular part of the worship came after they, had the announcements and dismissed the kids. (laughs) Uh, But seriously, it was part of their worship. This was their, their, what's my word here? Fertility. The idea of growing and being fertile. And it was immoral. But Paul was in the center of this. So while he's writing to Thessalonica, he's probably sitting and looking out the window, and there it is. And Thessalonica was no different. In a book called The History of European Morals, William Lecky paints a lurid picture of sexual license during the early period of the Roman Empire. The cities of Greece, Asia Minor, and Egypt, he writes, had become centers of the wildest corruption, and innumerable slaves from these countries had spread their immorality to Rome. Indeed, there has probably never been a period when vice was more extravagant or uncontrolled than it was under the Caesars. Because Rome has pretty much said, well, what do you already believe? Whatever, you can do whatever you want. Just as long as you give fealty to the emperor first. After that, uh, we don't care. So, (coughs) chaos. There was no control over any of this. There is a writer called Antipater of Thessalonica, which I'd never heard of before, came across him in this commentary way back in this time. So he's from Thessalonica to whom Paul is writing. He's commented on the price of love with prostitutes, saying, quote, Homer said all things well, but best of all that Aphrodite is golden. For if you bring the cash, my friend, there is neither porter in your path, nor dog chained at the door. But if you come otherwise, Cerebus will be there. And Cerebus is the multi-headed dog who guarded the gates of hell. In other words, if you got the money, We'll make you happy. Otherwise, don't show up. This is a writer in Thessalonica. And Paul's writing to the people in that church, many of whom may have been saved out of that, especially the Gentiles, of course, the Greeks. And there was a temple to Aphrodite in Thessalonica. So he's talking about this immorality that's going on Rampantly all around them. So, we come to this idea, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I want to um, very briefly help us maybe define or redefine or uh, reestablish our understanding of sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification technically has three meanings, past, present, and future. In Scripture, sanctification in the past happened at salvation when we were set apart and a one-time declaration of righteousness based on the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's found in Hebrews 10.10. There is a future aspect of sanctification that is also found in Scripture, Ephesians 5.7, Which in essence says at the end of time we will be transformed from a mortal to a glorious immortal body and be made holy and blameless at that time. So we have the past. When we were saved, sanctified. There's a future sanctification at the end of time. And then there's a present sanctification. This is why it gets confusing when you're talking about these things. Here in Thessalonians, the present aspect emphasizes an ongoing process by which believers are made progressively more holy as they are set apart from evil and increasingly concentrated toward God. You can use Hebrews 12:14 as your verse for that. Now, theologians, in an effort to help their students separate these three past, present, and future, will occasionally use different words. Um, now, I'm not going to say this is a, um, as a declaration of all time. But in essence, the setting apart at salvation is justification. That's how we phrase it. So if you want to look at sanctification as an umbrella, and you have the three tenses of past, present, and future, past would be when you're justified. Justification, set apart at the point of salvation by the act of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and your acceptance of that. The present, then you use the word sanctification, that idea of the ongoing process. And third is the word glorification. So you don't, when, so you, if you see it or you hear sanctification being talked about as the point of when you were saved, you were sanctified. Well, yes, but it's confusing in our head because it's the same word. And so we end up misunderstanding sanctification. Those who will say, well, when you were saved, you were made sinless forever. Well, No, that's not not what it meant. You were justified. You were made right with God at that point. Does that make sense? So if you ever hear this, We just want to make sure we're making sure we're talking about the same thing. So he comes to this and he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The idea of abstaining is actually very clearly means a clean cut. This isn't just to avoid it every once in a while, and it's no, it's put it away, put it aside. Get rid of it. Don't even put yourself in a position where you can be tempted by it. Now, it's real easy to say when you're reading the Bible and you have a preacher up there saying stuff like I'm saying and all of us go home and on the way home we're bombarded with images on the side of the road either in billboards or in people's attire. We're bombarded by it. You think the Corinthian people and the Thessalonians were bombarded by it. They had no idea. None. But it's interesting that if anyone feels that the Bible is unclear when it comes to sexual morality, they haven't read this verse. It's unequivocal. You cut it out. You stay away from pornea, which is the Greek word for sexual immorality. Yeah.
1: I like the word flea.
0: Yeah, flea is a good one. Very good one. Um, because it is chasing you at all times. You know, there's that. But the other thing is, some people will stop and turn around and <coughs> wait for it to catch up. And he's saying, no, just cut it off. Do whatever you can. Now, this five verses here, three through eight, I've read them once, but in listening to Alistair Begg in his sermon on this passage, he did something that is absolutely flat-out brilliant. And so I, you know, this is one of my complaints about his... uh, sermons online, is they're not transcribed. So I sat down and I transcribed this for you so I could read it to you. Um, he said, look at verses 3-8 through eight, and you'll be reading along or looking at it while I read what he wrote or what he said. He said, view this paragraph as one half of a conversation. What we have here is Paul's answers in a dialogue that is taking place between he and the people in the church in the congregation of Thessalonica imagine it this way and I'll just read and you kinda look at the text and you'll see what what he was doing here Paul says it's God's will that you should be sanctified to which the individual replies like "Um, what do you mean? and Paul says avoid sexual immorality And the reply is, well, how am I supposed to do that? Paul writes, learn to control your own body. Live within the God-ordained limits. To which the individual responds, well, so it's just kind of a personal and private matter, is that it? And the apostle replies, no, make sure you don't wrong your brother in relationship to these things. To which the individual responds, well... I'm sure that since the Lord is so loving, He won't mind if I mess up. To which the apostle replies, Listen, the Lord will punish this kind of sin. To which the individual responds, Can you just say this to me again in one sentence? And the apostle replies, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. To which the individual responds, I think you're being a little excessive in your relationship to this, Paul. I think you're going a wee bit over the top. To which the Apostle responds in verse 8, He who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Doesn't that kind of open this passage up? It's a dialogue. It's this... Back and forth, you can see two people talking and Paul saying, yeah, you need to be sanctified. Avoid sexual immorality. Control your own body. And don't wrong your brother in relationship to these things. Because let me tell you, the Lord will punish this sin. God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. And if you reject this, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. Wow. Yes. But
1: the one unforgivable sin is
0: rejecting God,
1: the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, right. So I'm thinking hmm, so if you've been given the Holy Spirit and you proceed to ignore that you your own passion,
0: whatever that is. I'm not sure that's what that passage means. In, in, I
1: mean, it's it's
0: sin is sin is breaking God's will. But I think that passage is really dealing with rejecting the salvation of God that has been provided, not a act or a sinful action, because then you're putting yourself in the the tenuous position that any sin means you have lost your salvation. Or broke your salvation. So we have to be careful we don't conflate the two. I can see where you're going with it because he's, in that last phrase, he's kind of saying that, but he doesn't go that specific. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 But it's a good point. You sin and you are rejecting God. You are basically saying, hey, I knew better, but I don't care. Right, right. which Paul addresses in other passages. He's saying, oh, the so grace may abound so I can do whatever I want. And he emphatically says, no, that is not what I'm saying. You know, just don't, don't take these things too far. He's saying, I can see where you're going, but no, that's not what I meant. And I, I, I just, when it comes to the whole issue of sexual morals and, and all of that, it's amazing to me, my friends, in that you know, I read widely and constantly and frequently I come, come across something the week before I'm teaching. So this past week I get this post from a guy named Tom Gilson and I'm just going to quote the section and I could read the whole thing. In our society, both men and women want sex without consequences. Gay marriage is about granting full social approval to homosexual sex. Simple friendships don't need Supreme Court approval. Civil unions would have given the gay people the the rest of what they wanted, everything except full endorsement of their physical relationship. Marriage added only one more thing, training the world to celebrate their union. Their sexual union. Secularists keep asking, why do you Christians make such a big deal over sex? And I laugh. We're making the big deal? Have you seen a sitcom lately? Or even a commercial for one? I don't watch the actual shows, but from what I can see from their commercials, it's all about the sex. Sex is good. We all agree on that. It's also massively powerful. Christian morality treats sex with the power that it is, and contains it wisely inside proper relationships. The world trivializes it, treating it as something to be toyed with, spreading it everywhere, but thinly, and stripping sex of its power, they also take away its proper joy and satisfaction. They try to make up for it, but stupidly, trivializing it even more, and acting as if where, what, how, and who doesn't matter. That's why it's the sex, wherever you look, that's making us stupid. But as long as any party... Court or religion stands in the way of full sexual freedom. It won't matter how much good they do. They're going to feel the wrath of today's sexual progressives. Wow. Powerful statement. And so true. It's everywhere. So we come to verse 4. And you'll note in the handout that I gave you... um, that I have footnotes. I don't usually do that, but this is one time where the Bible translations disagree with each other vehemently. We have the ESV that reads that each one of you should know how to control his own body. The King James says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel. The New American Standard says that you, should, that you know how to acquire a wife. Wait, what? And then the RSV, of which the New American Standard was created to counter the RSV's improper translations of certain verses, says how you should take a wife for himself, they agreed with each other, oh my gosh. And then you have the NIV says how you should learn to control your own body, and then J.B. Phillips' paraphrase said everyone should learn to control his own body, keeping it pure and treating it with respect. Which is it? Now, I read excurses. I read commentaries. I could probably spend, oh, a good 30 minutes on the etymology of the words. And you would all have nice naps for 30 (laughs) minutes. And even when I was done, I kind of stepped back and went, I'm not sure I understand because you have John Stott and Augustine and the New American Standard and the RSV on one side that says that you should take a wife. Who am I going to argue with John Stott and argue with Augustine? But here you have on the other side an immense number of scholars who are saying, no, that isn't what it means. Yeah. I'm not going to go that deep, but I just want you to be aware because if you have a different translation in front of you, um, You're going to read that verse differently. And that isn't necessarily correct. So I'll just preface it by saying I side with the ESV and the NIV that says it should be control your own body. So starting with that premise, by the time I'm done here, I will have not convinced you, but at least you will be aware of the differences. All right. Yeah. Now, my
1: NAS is your own Vessel.
0: So there are two NASBs. Ah, got it. Which one do you have? The
1: well, one that says Vessel. Is your, <laughs> the old, is,
0: what's your copyright? Is old. it the old one? The old one has Vessel. The new one, it changed it to Wife.
1: See See, in 1995, right around the time Windows 95 came out, the NASB came out with the NASB 95. This is pre that. This is, is pre-95, you guarantee? This is like seven Okay, so yeah, <laughs> this is really old.
0: You do realize that Vietnam War fiction is now considered historical fiction? <laughs> that's really <laughs> distressing. Anyway, that's, that was a nice artwork. Anyway, the Greek word for body is skios. And then you have others that translate it as wife, and others that translate it as vessel. So it is translated, it is 22 times in the New Testament, and it is translated as, uh, in the SV, um, article, container, uh, goods, jar, object, property, vessel, and vessels, and wife. So you want to go, well, then maybe this is the right word. Well, technically it is. Because you find over in 2 Corinthians 4.7, they call this treasure in earthen skewos, earthen vessels. In 2 Timothy 2.21, the one who purges from impurity is being a skios of honor, a vessel of honor. So technically that's this. The problem is, is the verb, which... In the NASB is we have the word control. And in the other translation is the word acquire. (coughs) Technically, it's the word acquire. So that's why you had the King James saying to possess or acquire a vessel. Now, there would be, there were those who were saying that to correctly interpret, to acquire a vessel. Well that would mean that it could be a body because he's talking about his own, you know, the body. You can't acquire your own body. So it must mean something else. He must be saying you need to take a wife. There are other passages we find over in First Corinthians seven, eight, and nine that it's good to be married. Uh, you know, if you've got challenges with that, with those things, you know, that would help solve this. The context As I read it, and we could have this discussion afterwards or whatever you like, but the context is talking about sexual immorality. It isn't talking about fixing it with a wife. And he's talking to the entire church when he's talking to brothers, it's brothers and sisters. It's a broader word. So it'd be kind of hard for the woman to take a wife, especially in that culture. So the idea of controlling the body does make sense. And that's why most scholars fall on that direction. Um, as, As many of the preachers and teachers that I came along says, again, we could go on and on and on, back and forth. We don't know exactly which way it's intended. But if it's acquiring a wife, that actually devalues the woman. Is just a vessel she's the band-aid for your problem and that counters everything else that scripture says about the sanctity of the holiness of marriage and that relationship it isn't a um, uh, what's my word here it isn't a device to help fix a problem it's interesting isn't it who knew I mean, you go down, and it's interesting. Apparently, and tell me, does the, the RSV have the footnote with the alternative translation, or not? It does. Okay, is that the translation footnote, or is that the Oxford annotated footnote? The uh,
1: translation
0: footnote. Okay. Early, apparently, earlier versions of the RSV didn't even have the translation <coughs> alternative. They just simply said it. Said take a wife. Oh, yeah.
1: So, why would you choose that word, wife? Hmm? Why would you choose, why would anyone choose that word, wife?
0: Because it would identify the acquire what? Acquire a vessel? Well, what do you mean by vessel? And they're saying acquire a wife. (coughs) Yeah, I know. It's a stretch. There is apparently one place in extant Greek literature outside the New Testament where it's translated as wife. in In some form so yeah it's really interesting With wife, it's like that's what the whole point would be if you're taking it that way is that it solves the problem however my understanding of Greek culture at the time and I found other things which I read more about Roman sexual immorality than I ever want to read but they made a big deal that you have a wife for procreation and to take care of the family, Right. but then you have the concubine to take care of your needs. And then you can also go to the to temple worship to you know, do your worship too. It was all very casual. So for him to say the wife would solve the problem to the Greek, it doesn't solve the problem. They already had their fix. They would already figured it out under the guise of what the scripture is saying is immorality. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Let's go on. So John Stott um, made a very interesting comment. He says, we need to have an additional paragraph in this discussion for those of us who are single and therefore lack a God-given context for sexual love. What about us, meaning he was unmarried When he wrote this, he was at least 65 years old, and had never been married. Uh, So he writes, we too must accept this apostolic teaching, however hard it may seem, as God's purpose for both us and for society. We shall not become a bundle of frustration and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. What a great phrase. We will not become a bundle of frustration and inhibition if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. Then the frustration and inhibitions will come out. Christ's yoke is easy, provided we submit to it. It is possible for human sexual energy to be redirected, both into affectionate relationships with friends of both sexes and into loving service of others. Multitudes of Christian singles, both men and women, can testify to this. Alongside a natural loneliness, accompanied sometimes by acute pain, we can find joyful self-fulfillment in the self-giving service of God and other people. Well said.
1: Yeah. That was Stott, right? John Stott. And did you say he was in the camp that said that word means wife? Right then why didn't he follow his own advice and get a wife simply because he says that's what it means? He, was never, he was
0: never directed, he never felt he should marry.
1: But, but th- this, is, this, this is what he's saying is the meaning is, you get a wife, if you're, if you're not going to be sexually anymore, you get a wife, why didn't he just go get a wife if that's what he believed the, the, the word means? Yeah, if you, means you want to take
0: mean. it from a point of it being a command.
1: Yeah, I I'm not sure know.
0: it's a command in the verse. It's a suggestion. Mm-hmm.
1: So he's basically saying, I don't have a problem because I'm so pious, therefore I don't have no, the yeah, Not at all. No, no, I'm, not, no, no, I'm no, no, trying no. to figure out what he's trying to say no, in that no. about no. the bundle of nerves and all this.
0: Well, what you don't have is the other paragraph he wrote about the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I was just giving his statement about the single and how what the positive side of being single can be, especially in the context of what the world is saying.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so. We could talk about that later. I can oh, show you his oh, material. I found it interesting that John Piper has 38 sermons on the topic of sexual purity. 38. They're all listed in this one website on all this topic. I anyway, went, holy smoke. If you think of where his church is, it's right outside Bethel College and Seminary. And many of the students go to that church. Obviously, in his career as a pastor, he felt he needed to address this over and over and over and over again. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty amazing. So we slip down to verse 7. God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. The word impurity is a catharsia ah means without and catharsia means cleanse without cleaning it's a medical term to describe an oozing pus-filled wound it's also used to describe the decaying decaying flesh of a body in the ground that's what it means yuck as one guy wrote if you knew the meaning of that word and applied that visual to your mind whenever you think of word being impure. That's what he's talking about. It's about as disgusting and as gross as you can imagine. And we are not called to that. We're called to holiness. Or sanctification. The word hagios is the same root word as the word sanctification. The word sanctification is hagiosmos. The word holiness is hagios. It's the same idea. This being set apart to a holy and pure life. This is Chuck Swindoll in his commentary on this. He said, the only answer to this moral plummet is holiness. In the 21st century, that almost sounds archaic. Like... Thou or ye or doth. Holiness conjures up so many pictures in our minds, we tend to cloister it in the hushed chambers of monasteries and cathedrals, hooded monks and mystics reading in silence. God, however, wants to unlock the wooden doors and open the stained glass windows of our thinking so His holiness can walk freely through every room in our lives. He longs for us to be holy, that is, pure as He is holy. Yes, God is calling ordinary dull people like you and me to become beacons of purity so that hope will pierce through to those who are stumbling in the world in their moral fog, a fog that seems to get only thicker with the passing of time. And in light of that, he says, we want, wants us to be a beacon of purity. I found a quote from D.L. Moody who said, Lighthouses do not blow horns. <laughs> they just shine. They're a beacon. This is the way. And you can pierce the fog. The horn, fine, you know, but they don't blow horns with, 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 with lighthouses. Charles Hodge wrote it this way, the more holy a person is, the more humble, self-renouncing, and more sensitive to every sin he becomes, and the more closely he clings to Christ. The moral imperfections to which cling to him he feels to be sins, which he laments and strives to overcome. Believers find that their life is a constant warfare and constant chastisement, and and they need to take the kingdom of heaven by storm and watch while they pray. And Ray Steadman adds to this, When I was younger, most people thought of holiness as grimness. I did not like holy people. They looked like they'd been soaked in embalming fluid. They were grim and dull, and they frowned at everything that was fun or pleasurable. But that is not holiness. The Old Testament speaks about the beauty of Holiness. In 1 Chronicles 16, 2 Chronicles 20, Psalm 29, the inner attractiveness that is apparent when someone begins to function inwardly as he or she was intended. What this says is that God is designing beautiful people. That's what He wants. Not mere outwardly beautiful people like those we see on TV, but inwardly beautiful people. He's more interested in the inward beauty of making admirable, trustworthy, loving, strong, compassionate people who have all that quality in their inner beauty. <coughs> so, one more thing I came across this week. I'm hand it out. One of my clients is the <coughs> president of the C.S. Lewis Institute, so I I get their mailings. As part of Lent, as part of the 40 days of meditation or run up to to the Easter celebration, they send this out every year and it's an annual spiritual checkup. And I thought, how fascinating. What a interesting exercise that we can do on our own in the form of questions. These are questions you would ask of yourself say, am I following Christ in the way and manner as I should? We won't go through it. This is just for your own fun and enjoyment. Um, I just thought it was a interesting thing to add to this conversation about holiness. Yeah.
1: Uh, just as an aside to your discussion about holiness and you know when my daughter was uh, when my daughter was little and in Sunday school she referred to some of the uh, ladies who taught her Sunday school class as pinch faces. And that always comes to mind when I think of the, what you said people soaked in a ball. A pinch face was her face. Yeah. her name for her t- Sunday school teachers that were so dour.
0: And yet we're called to joy and yeah. this, this, this beauty of holiness. In what form this takes? Now granted, this whole context of this passage is he is seeing that there is problems in the Thessalon- Thessalonican church. People have come out from licentiousness as a daily, natural, normal way of living... And he's calling them to something completely separate. We see that separation. It's just there are times where I look at the generations. And it makes me sound really old. But the generations that are growing up, that have grown up without any church foundation. They never heard of it. They never even heard the stories because their parents never took them to church. They were part of the generation that said, let's get rid of it. And then they don't have it as part of the next generation. And so all of they, the only thing they are taught is by the media and licentious living and holy living. And so when we come and say, well, the scripture says this, they go, what is the scripture? Where in the heck? That's 2,000 years old. It's not relevant. And that's the challenge we are faced. In that it's Rome all over again. And yet we are called to this holy living and we can then express that and say there's an alternative. There's a better alternative than what you have. This lostness, this broken, brokenness, this feeling of despair and lack of meaning. Because there is no purpose in what they're doing. So real quickly, this last few verses are interesting. It's verse 9, he says, concerning brotherly love, the brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. Just like the Eagles, just like the Phillies, just like the 76ers, yay. Um, Or the Flyers, if you are into hockey. Um, The word Philadelphia is only used five times in the entire New Testament. Based on the Greek word for love, phileo, which means brotherly love, but the word Philadelphia is only here and it's interesting for him to use this phraseology because prior to this when he talks about loving your brother he uses the word agape and even later in the verse he uses agape because later in the verse it says there's no need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to agape one another but he's used Philadelphia at the beginning so I stepped back and I thought why would he do that what is he trying to express and then I I really didn't have a good answer and so I started reading around rooting around with a variety of people and came across a phrase that I thought was very appropriate he said what Paul is trying to express to them is that it's God given God taught love that is expressed in a brotherly fashion as a fraternity of faith Not blood. And as he said, he goes, This is a great word to describe the feeling you have that you cherish towards some members of your church. They're not necessarily blood relatives, but they are family. And there is this love for one another that can only come from God, that is expressed, it's an agape love that is expressed in a brotherly fashion. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. It's just it's interesting variations of that Greek word, because you have Phileo, Agape, and Eros, and he's talking about an agape love that is expressed in Phileo in Philadelphia. And then that love is gone throughout all of Macedonia. Now remember, Paul is in Achaia. He's in South Greece. Macedonia is the north half of the country. So their reputation has gone throughout that entire region. And then he says, but you can do better. (laughs) It's the same phrase we looked at earlier. That you can excel still more. You've done all this. It's everywhere in Macedonia. But guess what? You need to bring it here too. You can do better. We can always do better. Always. And then he has this interesting little triad. You need to aspire or make it your ambition to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. Um, All I can say is those are really bizarre things to say. Because aren't we supposed to be declaring the gospel boldly? And loudly? Aren't we supposed to be, you know, demonstrative, like Paul is? And yet he says, you need to aspire. You need to have ambition to not have ambition. That's a misreading of the verse, of course. But you need to aspire to live quietly, mind your own business, and work with your hands. Something else is going on here. Now, we get clues in that if you go into Second Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. For we hear that some among you are walking in idleness, not busy in work, but are busybodies. And such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and earn their own living. This actually ties into the balance of the book of 1 Thessalonians in the question of the return of Christ. F.F. F. Bruce and many other scholars believe that what has happened is that there's been a faction within the Thessalonian church that says, Jesus is coming. So I don't need to show up for work. What's the point? He's going to be here tomorrow. Why should I kill myself today that labor thing. I hate that. I'll just sit around the house and play Nintendo. And then Jesus will show up and everything will be fine. And that's what's happening. And they have begun then to become a burden on others in the church because people got to eat and they're saying, well, you know, hey, I'm your brother. Can you invite me over for lunch? Uh, Okay. And the next thing you know, this begins to insidiously starts to undermine the fabric of the brotherly love in the congregation. And those who have all this time on their hands then become busybodies and start yammering and talking up stories and spreading gossip. And the next thing you know, you have cacophony and chaos, all because of a misunderstanding of the Lord's return, which we'll get into next week. Uh, in much more depth because then it gets very detailed if you look at the context the very next verses he starts talking about the end of time obviously there's something happening but he does a preamble to it in this verse and if you're reading it up to this point suddenly it seems to come out of the blue we've been just talking about sexual immorality and being pure and holy and now you're telling us to live quietly mind our own business and work with your hands what? What's, what do you mean? Well, they obviously knew what he meant. <laughs> it's our job is to figure out what he meant. Verse 12, So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In other words, there were those who were outside the church looking at these um, lazy ones and kind of going, Huh. You're a bunch of losers. That's not a witness. It's not a testimony at all. In fact, many, many preachers and commentators kept picking up on this and saying, if you want a witness at work, do a good job. Just be the best at what you do. And then you will have the opportunity to have conversation that will make sense. Um, I've s- told the story before and I'll just very briefly say it, but back in my college days I worked construction during the summer and uh, yeah summertime in Phoenix. We actually put a thermometer on the roof of, the w- of one section where I was stapling the 4x8 plywood to the roof beams And it was 145 degrees. Uh, And when the building inspector came two weeks later, they made me go back and redo it. Because my line was not straight. It was... (laughs) Apparently I was staggering. (laughs) And I didn't know it. I didn't even look back. I didn't care. Um, But yeah, they made me redo it. But there was another fellow on the crew who had just who was also a college student, had just come from Campus Crusade and was on fire for, for uh, witnessing. And on that crew were a bunch of drug addicts. Half of them were on speed. One guy had a massive um, scar in his chest where he had shot himself while cleaning his gun by accident. I mean, these were just really rough characters. They wanted nothing to do with that other fellow. Because at every opportunity... He would say, "Have you heard the good news?" They're like, "Shut up! I want to eat my lunch." I mean, you got really angry, and I'm not saying I knew what I was doing. I was a kid. I, just, you know, but when they asked me what I was going to study in college, I'd say, oh, "I'm going to be a Bible major." That's all I had to say. They're like, "Oh, are you like him?" Well, yeah, we believe the same thing, huh? But every person that I was Uh, Paired up with on that construction site brought up God religion and Christ. I never had to Not once that I convinced any of any of them. No, I didn't know what I was doing Um, I Just said yeah, and I would say this is what I believe like "Ah, I can't go with that and they would go there often their own thing But the conversation was there because I was working hard and I didn't make it a barrier to the relationship. Now that's not to say you don't speak when the opportunity is there and you don't witness. But what I'm saying is that when you look at this passage, he's trying to remind these people is that be a testimony in your life so that the culture and the people, those who are on the outside will look to you and go, There's something special there. We've run out of time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Again, your word is so deep and so full and so amazing. There's so much here to study, to read, to contemplate, to to just eat. It's like a meal that's only half finished that we need to come back to and heat up again and look at it over and over and over again. Lord, thank you for this opportunity that we can dive into your word in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.